Welcome back to Resident Strangers, Christian thinking in a foreign world. I'm Sarah Shallow, and I'm joined in the studio with Steve Ingram and Rich Holland. So those who attend Desert Springs will probably know who Sean Jones is. Sean is our evangelism and outreach pastor. So when I was interviewing to intern here at Desert Springs eight years ago, I'm not going to go into the full story, but Sean said he wanted to talk to me because none of y'all knew me. So Sean wanted to talk to me and he got on the phone with me. I was sitting in my dorm room and he said, who is Jesus to you? And he later told me that the way I answered that question would determine whether he felt I was going to be, you know, a good, I guess, a good fit for the team here. Wow. <laughs> well, you must have answered it okay. I must have answered it okay because I'm here now. But he said that he was he was really wanting to know if, if I had a personal relationship sure. with yeah, Jesus. Yeah, that's like the practical question. It right? is. It is because you you really can very quickly get to know someone's understanding of who Jesus is by the way they answer that question. So even just a quick plug, Sean also has a podcast here at Desert Springs called the Now Life Podcast, and they talk about some of those evangelistic things, so would encourage everyone to listen to that. But we're continuing that conversation on who Jesus is. And like I was just saying, you can know a lot about where someone stands with that. So what advice would you give to people, you know, if they're talking with someone and they say, oh, well, Jesus was you know, a, a good person, a good, mm. a good teacher, a good man, but, the, but there's no talk of him being the savior or, you know, how, how should you respond to something like that? That's not how I answered it, by the way, but. <laughs> well, you should be nice. Yes, you right? should be nice. That's good. <laughs> you should be nice. That's a, no, that's really good. <laughs> it's easy to be a keyboard warrior these days. So, but the reality is, and I have a, uh, a man here who does deals with philosophy, so he will explain this way better than <laughs> and I do. And of course, you're talking about Dr. Rich Holland, Dr. Sitting, Rich Holland. Ne- sitting right next to me. But really, it's not possible for Jesus to merely have been a good man because he claimed to be God. And if he claimed to be God and he knew he wasn't, then there's something entirely wretched in his soul. He was either lying or maybe he was self-deceived, which means he probably should have uh, been cared for someplace. But the reality is he he can't just be a good man because of what he claimed. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Uh, to believe in me is to believe in the Father. I and the Father are one. So... Uh, Josh McDowell put it this way. He was either a liar, a lunatic, or it's got to be the truth. And so now I wouldn't suggest you do that with your friend, <laughs> but that's some of what you got to start poking at a little bit of how, how could he be a good man when he said this and yet in your mind clearly wasn't. Yeah, that, that actually it comes from C.S. Lewis. I think Josh McDowell probably quotes Lewis quite a bit in that. But C.S. Lewis has made that famous. It's the idea that uh, the famous trilemma, the Lord, liar, or lunatic. Uh, and, and yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Is it, it, and that's a response, the way Lewis put it, that's a response specifically to the claim that Jesus was a, quote unquote, good moral teacher, or merely so. Obviously, we think Jesus was a good moral teacher, but not. that's certainly not all 
that Jesus is a good moral teacher. So yeah, he was, he either is who he claimed to be or he's a liar or something is really unstable or or crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I should have said this up front, but we're continuing the conversation from last week on who is Jesus. So if you're just joining us now, it would probably be a good idea for you to get some more context about what we're talking about. So go ahead and pause and go listen to last week's episode and then jump back in with us. So Sarah, you started with a, a practical question, you know, Sean asked you, who is Jesus to you? And that's sort of like personalizing. Uh, but I guess, you know, that's sort of downstream from the deeper theological question of who Jesus actually is in reality, right? So like we, we talked about John 1 last time, right? It identifies who Jesus is. And then in John 1, 12 talks about those who receive him, right? And that's both both halves of the equation. Who are you receiving? Um, and in the, and in, I was going to say in the ancient world, but it's really today as well in the ancient world and in today's world, so much of what uh, differentiates Christianity from other belief systems is what they say about Jesus. All the major religions in the world acknowledge the existence of Jesus of Nazareth what makes them different is what they say about his identity, right? So I, I was thinking about one example of this um, from, we, we talked about John chapter one last time, and there's an interesting phrase that comes up uh, in John chapter one in, in verse one, actually, um, that is sometimes discussed in the context of the Jehovah's Witness perspective on Jesus. And so I'll, I'll read it here uh, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And so what uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses will tell you, in fact, their translation of the Bible, it says uh, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was a God. And the, in, in English, they would put a lowercase g was a God. Have you seen this before? I have. Yeah. So there's a couple of things that are interesting about that that I, I've said something about Greek last time. I'm going to say something about Greek again. I know enough Greek to be dangerous. <laughs> but last time you said you didn't like talking about Greek. I know that's because it may, I <laughs> it's don't all want, Greek to me. I know. I don't want people to think, cause you know how some people will quote Greek just to make them yeah, sound, yeah, sound yeah. like they know more than whatever. Anyway. So I, I actually I do all the time. Do you all the time? Oikos. What, yeah, that's right. Oikos. It's the one Greek word. Oikos. Well, one of the interesting things about that is that my first Greek professor had us memorize John 1-1 in Greek, and it was a bonus question on our final exam. I had to write it out in Greek. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> did you get it right? I did. I got all the points and the extra credit. Um, but so a couple of things about that. Uh, I'm just going to say a few things about Greek grammar really quick. So first of all, just in the interest of full disclosure, it is possible using Greek grammar rules to translate that phrase and the word was a God, right? And that's because Greek doesn't have the indefinite article, the word the a that doesn't appear in Greek. So it's perfectly legitimate when the article is absent, because there isn't one for us to, it. we can supply it in yeah. English. The word was a God. Now, interesting, interesting thing about uh, Greek grammar. Another interesting thing about it, though, tells us that you should never translate it that way in this case, because uh, you know how in English, when we identify 
uh, a subject and a predicate or a subject and an object. We do that with word order. Like Steve recorded the podcast, right? Steve is the subject of the sentence. And so Steve is doing the action. In Greek, you don't have to do that. You can put the words in any order you want. And the reason why you can do that is because they use endings, case endings, uh, gender, number, and case endings on the word roots to indicate what function they play in the sentence, right? So you know the subject of the sentence is in the nominative case in Greek. Uh, so word order then, well, if they can do that, they can put the words in any order they want. What does word order do then? Well, word order is for the point of communicating other things like emphasis, right? So in Greek, the word order is the word was with God. And then the next phrase, it doesn't say the word was God. It says literally God was the word. Now, it's translated the word was God because the word word is in the nominative case. So in English, we say the word was God. The reason that John put the word God first is specifically to rule out the Jehovah's Witnesses translation of this passage. What John was trying to do in organizing the words of that verse was make sure that nobody could possibly make the mistake that the Jehovah's Witnesses make is making it as clear as could possibly be that the identity of this word who became flesh in Jesus is God. It's as clear as can possibly be. All right. You all got that. So (laughs) if you didn't pick up the, the Greek lesson, let me give you the practical problem with it that even creates the problem for the Jehovah's Witness. Because the reason they do it is they believe there's only one God and they would see that as the Father. The problem is, if the Word became a God, they just became polytheistic. Right. And they cannot accept that either. So the so what I'm assuming, the, Rich, thank you for all of that background, but, but you're, you're bringing all of that up to just further prove who Jesus is. Am I understanding? Yeah, right. So it's, it's this idea of thinking that Jesus is merely a human or even uh, a specially endowed human, a, a, you know, somebody who's uniquely filled with the spirit and has special insight and somehow a, a unique relationship with God that allows him to say things that are true that other humans can't do. All of that stuff is ruled out. Right. Uh, what, what John in his prologue is making clear is that that the, the person that we refer to as Christ, who John identifies as the word in this passage, is God. And so when we think about Jesus identity, we touched on this in our last episode. Jesus is truly human and truly God. And so we we worship Jesus. We rely on him for salvation and all those kinds of things because this is a person of the Godhead. Uh, the word is God. So questions that I think uh, a lot of people have, you know, it is it is kind of hard for us to understand how Jesus could be man and God at the same time. So those questions of, you know, while he was on earth, did he lose his divinity or, or the divine nature? Did he, was he no longer omniscient? How do you, how do we understand that? Yeah. So I think Paul talks about that in Philippians chapter two, but that again, is kind of an interesting passage that he, the, the way it's translated is he emptied himself 
and so some people have taken this idea that what he did was that he he set aside or he ceased to be fully God when he was here. I don't think that's what the passage teaches. I don't either. I think what it, it taught, the best way I could explain it, and Rich, you could maybe do it a little better, but it was this voluntary surrender of exercising aspects of his deity so that he could fully uh, embrace and experience the humanity that he was going to be our savior. So we talked again earlier uh, that when he was here, the best we understand, he did no miracles until the Holy Spirit came upon him at his baptism. Then he begins his ministry. And there's many times that it seems to suggest that he did it not through his own power as the Son of God, the second person in the Godhead, but he did it through the power of the Spirit. Does that mean he couldn't have done it? No, it just means that to fully embrace humanity, uh, to to be that one who, um, you know, that second Adam, that he voluntarily determined, chose, again, think of his great love for us to not exercise that which was rightfully his. I mean, I think we can even see it in the fact that he asked God what was rightfully his was the glories of heaven. Mm. But he he voluntarily set that aside for a short period of time to not experience that so that he could become one of us. Yeah. And we, we mentioned on, I think the last episode that even in the early church, a lot of the controversies were about exactly how you explain what happened in the incarnation, right? Mm -hmm. So we say that Jesus is truly God and truly human, but as soon as we, and we act, we said something similar when we talked about the Trinity, as soon as you try to, there's almost a point where you, if you try to give further explanation beyond yes. what scripture says, then you're immediately making a mistake. Yes. Right. And, and it is difficult. And I, and I, you know, I don't want to make it sound like it's super easy to figure out because if it were, there wouldn't have been these controversies. Right. But but there are there are things that cause people to question, like, uh, for example, Jesus says he doesn't know the, the hour of his return. Right. We, and we have to whatever model that we come up with for the incarnation, we have to take that into consideration. And then on the flip side of that, I, I think about we're talking about John's uh, gospel. I think about uh, Nathaniel. Right. He saw Nathaniel under the tree. And so we have these bits of data here and there. And again, this is what systematic theology does. We try to put all these bits of data together to come up with a coherent picture of, in this case, what is scripture teaching about Jesus? So to, to direct answer to your question, Sarah, that you started this little part with, um, no, uh, Christ did not cease to be God, right? That would be heresy. Uh, that in, in Jesus of Nazareth, the, the person that we're talking about there is truly God and truly human, the whole way through. This is not, uh, um, yeah, truly God and truly human. And like, like you said, Steve, there's, there's a lot of controversy about Philippians too, about yeah. what that means. Um, and I don't know if setting aside is the right way to say it. I heard one, uh, theologian say it's that he decided to, uh, 
uh, have the divine consciousness sort of ride subliminally right mm. below the surface. And so, and, and that's why you see these limitations or apparent limitations, um, as, as these things are expressed in Jesus. Another one that I, uh, I heard about recently was the, the temptation of Jesus. And the question came up, uh, could, does this mean if, if Christ was tempted, does this mean that he could have sinned? That was the question that was posed. And I'm pausing, looking at you, Steve. You're sp- <laughs> <laughs> I have an answer, but I'm curious as to what, how you would say, what you would say to somebody who said that. Well, Jesus was God. Right. And so it, it was, would be inconsistent in that, that piece for him to, to have sinned because he was perfect. He was pure. Uh, but the temptation was real. He had a flush. He was hungry. Uh, as a, as a person, we have that, that sense of, of ourself. And so, you know, show yourself to be, so could, could he have sinned? I, I personally think that on the one hand, yes. And on the one hand, no, that that's to me, that's the unique aspect of who Jesus is. It's a lot of people say it exactly that way. The way I would look at that is that those passages are not designed to answer that question, right? When we see the, like the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, that's not, that passage is not designed to tell us whether he could or could not sin. Instead, I think it's designed to tell us that he would not sin, right? It's emphasizing his faithfulness to the father's plan, his faithfulness to his calling as our savior. So it's emphasizing his faithfulness, not whether he has the ability to sin or not. But I, but for the record, I don't think he did. I don't think he could have sinned. <laughs> well, as always, I mean, we could go into so much more. We could spend a lot more time. But what I, what I want us to wrap with on this episode is for someone who, or I'll, I'll phrase it like this, what do you feel as a pastor as an elder philosopher, as a, as a Christian is the most important thing for people to know about who Jesus is. Well, number one, that he's our savior. So you, and we might want to unpack this someday. You you go into the old Testament and you see these laws of the kinsmen and, and the the idea of redemption and you see it in the, the law uh, where a, a life could be redeemed for a sacrifice of something of, of, of equal value. And the fact that Jesus is a second Adam now is going to redeem us. He had to be one of us. He had to be our kinsman. And so to me, that's the most important thing. That's why there is salvation in no one else. There right. is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Right. He he is the only way of salvation. So if you're asking me what's the most important piece, it's that. I can't save myself. You can't save yourself. A church can't save you. A pope can't save you. No other religious figure can save you. Only Jesus, because he was the only perfect God-man. But I think from a, from a Christian perspective, I think the writer of Hebrews— pulls it out so beautifully of why this is important to us, why Jesus 
having become one of us. And it's in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. It says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. And if you were with us when we studied the book of Hebrews, this is the thrust of the Hebrews. Don't quit. Push on. Life can be hard. The Christian life can be hard. Persecution can come. Hold fast your confession. Don't turn away. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things like we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. And there's so much there, and he uses a double negative, which is kind of hard in our language to understand. But his whole point is Jesus has, has walked in our shoes. He understands the trials of life. Uh, maybe you're going through drama in your family. Do you think Jesus didn't fit deal with drama in his family? Have you not read in John about <laughs> the the marriage at Canaan, right? Uh, his, his mom is calling him to do something. Uh, maybe you're going through a, you know, a hardship. Uh, Jesus, uh, man, he, he took our sins on the cross. Maybe you're facing the death of someone. Jesus is at the tomb of Lazarus and he's weeping, right? So he has touched, he has been where we have been. He knows our feelings. Now, the big thing is he, of course, did it without sin. And I hear a lot of times people take this, well, Jesus understands that I slipped up. No, I don't think he does. I don't think he understands. Jesus could never understand sin. That's the part of this he didn't experience. But the fact that I say he doesn't understand, it doesn't mean that he doesn't care and he's not understanding of our failures. He certainly is. You see that with Peter. Peter denies him three times. Jesus, I think, is concerned about how is that going to play in his life later on in ministry. So he takes him right back to a charcoal fire and gives him three opportunities to reiterate his devotion to Jesus. Jesus cares. Jesus understands. Jesus knows how our heart is. And, and if you, you know, maybe you're listening today and you're just going through a, a heartbreaking time or a difficult time, or maybe you're struggling with temptation, or maybe you have fallen to temptation. And what I want to tell you is because Jesus was fully human as well as fully divine, what we can do is we can draw near with with incredible confidence that he knows, that he loves, that he cares, that he wants to extend his grace, his mercy, his strength, his peace, whatever it is that our heart needs. Because he, he understands. Amen. Thank you both. This has, I think, been a really important episode. I hope people are encouraged. We're so glad you've been joining us each week. Hey, if you have a moment, would you give us a review? It would really help this podcast reach more people. You can connect with us at residentstrangers at dscchurch.com. And we'll be back again next Tuesday. See you then. Thanks for listening to Resident Strangers, a podcast ministry of Desert Springs Community Church in Goodyear, Arizona. 
Resident Strangers is hosted by Steve Ingram, Rich Holland, and me, Sarah Shallow. Our show is produced by Brandon and Brittany Petrie, and again, me, Sarah Shallow. If you like our podcast, please remember to share, subscribe, leave a review, and visit dscchurch.com for more information. Oh,